turning tonight in the Word of God to the book of Romans, and we are reading at chapter 8. Chapter 8 in the book of Romans, and if you go down to that familiar verse, which is verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. He was even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you will know from previous nights, and the Lord will add His blessing onto the reading of His Word there from Romans 8, we've been taking the topic, and we have stayed with bees each night. Didn't plan it to be like that, but that's the way it has worked out. God's people are broken, and they are born carried as the eagle carries her young. And then we are beneficiaries, because all manner of grace and mercy is channeled to us from the God of our salvation. And tonight, God's people are beloved. God's people are beloved. And you can see in the verse 38 and 39 of Romans 8, for I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a hymn in the book, and it's written by Frances Ridley Havergal, and it's probably one of her least known hymns, and it begins, Church of God, beloved and chosen. Church of God, for whom he died, claim thy gifts, and praise the giver, ye are washed and sanctified. It is an indescribable privilege for anybody to be part of the church of God, beloved and chosen by the Lord, to be loved by Him, to use a word that we find in the Bible reading tonight, to be one of His elect. 
one of those who were chosen of God, redeemed by Christ, called to life and faith in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the highest of blessings. God's redeeming love is particular, and it is distinguishing. It is showered upon, and Francis Ridley Havergal has it right there, it's showered upon the church of God to tell sinners that God loves all people the same. The saved as well as the damned, that greatly tarnishes the love of God. It reduces it to a fickle, helpless, frustrated passion to tell sinners that God loves them regardless of their relationship to Jesus Christ is either to assure them that God will save them without Christ, some other method, or to imply God is weak, God is mutable, God is helpless, and so often frustrated, and that cannot be. When Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 39 that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, the us, who is he talking about here? The us to whom he refers is God's elect people, those sinners who are actually saved by His grace. There are some people in this world whom God does not love. You remember he said, Esau, have I hated? And the Bible, in clear and unmistakable terms, it tells us of people whom God does not love. Psalm 5 and 5, Psalm 11, verse 5 to 7, John 3, 36, those under condemnation, and Romans 9 and the verse 13. So, the other side of the coin, to be one of those whom God does love, and to be assured of that love, that is an incredible thing going to underline some of the features of the love of God tonight. And we are going to take two main points. It's kind of sermonic sacrilege, only to have two points, not three or four or more. Uh, so we're going to have two, but there will be sub-points underneath, so that'll well compensate for the lack of main points, and it will bring us within the time limit that we're setting for ourselves this week. The aspects of God's love, first of all, and number one, it is free and unconditional. His love is free and unconditional. In other words, is there anything in me that attracts the love of God? Was there anything God saw and He decided, well, there's somebody over there looking down the tunnel of time, and they're going to be so beautiful and lovely in their life, I must love them. Not a bit of that. His love is free. His love is unconditional, as he says in Hosea 14 and 4, so it is with all of his children, I will love them freely. It means there is no reason why he should, but he confers his love upon us freely. It's an unconditional, unqualified, unmerited, uncaused love. God does not love us. No matter what that does to our pride, He doesn't do it because there's anything amiable or anything attractive in us, and Romans 9.13 and verse 11 as well makes that plain. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and why did He do that? He did that 
way before any of them had done anything good or anything bad in their lives. He did it that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth. In other words, His love is shed abroad upon us freely at His own volition. Nothing to do with us at all. One thing that we should underline here in making this point is this. God did not begin to love us because Christ died for us. No, He loved us before Christ died for us. In fact, Christ's death as our sin-atoning substitute is the result of God's love for His people. John 3.16, 1 John 4 and the verse 10. Because He loved us, and we can't give the reason why He sent His Son to redeem us. So the love of God, it is free, it is unconditional. Then the love of God as well is eternal. He declares, and I'm sure you love the words, and I know that I do in Jeremiah 31 and 3, I have loved thee with an everlasting love from eternity to eternity. You see, the love of God is like Himself. From everlasting to everlasting, that's what He is. He is immutable, unchangeable. He is sure and steadfast. As Bible commentator and author A.W. Pink uh, would have put it, nothing is more absurd than to imagine that anyone beloved of God can eternally perish. Try to get hold of that in our own minds tonight. As God the Father loved His Son from eternity, so He loved His people from eternity. How did He do that? As the love of God is in Christ. God's love for Christ and His love for us is the same. And only faith can grasp that blessed truth that rises higher than reason, it rises higher than mere emotion. How does He do it? God loves His people in Christ, in Christ. So He beholds His people, looks at them, looks at us in His dear Son, loves us as He loves His Son, delights in us as He delights in His Son, is pleased with us as He is pleased with His Son, for He sees us in Him. That's exactly what our Lord declares in that great high priestly prayer in John 17 to verse 23, because He prays, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And so we can say, loved with everlasting love. Led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me. It is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am His, and He is mine. So the love of God, it is free, it is unconditional, it is eternal, and it is also immutable, that is unchangeable, irrevocable, can't be cancelled, indestructible, cannot be broken. You see, the point is God's love is not like man's love. God's love does not change ever. 
No matter what the circumstances or the conditions, in John 13 and 1, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Malachi 3 and 6, He is the Lord, He does not change. We did nothing to compel God to love us, and we can do nothing to repel God's eternal love. It's not dependent on or even regulated by our faithfulness to Him. Though, of course, we have to be faithful. There's no doubt about that. But the freeness, the eternality, the immutability, unchangeableness of God's love in Christ to us, it means that our everlasting salvation is a matter of absolute certainty. Nothing, Paul says, and he mentions a whole variety of possible forces that could be thought of as powerful enough to wrest us free from the love of God. And having listed them all, he says, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, the aspects of His love. And then secondly, we come to the activity of God's love, the activity of God's love. How do you test love? It's seen in what it does. It's seen in how it acts. So it's tested by its deeds. And we know the love of God by the gracious operations of that love which He has performed on our behalf. All of the acts of God's grace done for His people in time while we're on the planet here, they're expressions of His love for us from everlasting. The first act of God's love for us. As we have it revealed in the Bible, it is election and predestination. Election and predestination. A lot of places don't like to talk about this. We have read it in our passage tonight. We cannot possibly avoid it. It is entirely biblical. We find it in Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6 as well, as Romans 8. We find it in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13, and many other passages in God's Word, Old Testament through to New. In fact, you can't trace the love of God in the Bible without traveling down the tram lines of election and predestination. They're eternal acts of God's amazing love towards such hell-deserving sinners as each of us is. Election and predestination, the activity of His love. He chose us before the foundation of the world. How remarkable and mind-blowing is that? Not only that, another activity of His love The love of God is revealed in the redemption of our souls by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Regularly spoken of in Scripture because the whole plan of redemption fills the book. And we'll give a couple of examples only. Well, Romans 5 and 8 would be one. Uh, That would be a text that should be there instead of Ephesians. We've already done that. Romans 5 and 8 and 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, 1 John chapter, John chap, 1 John chapter 3 and the verse 16 as well. So that's you well confused with those references. We'll give them again. Romans 5 and 8, but God commendeth His love toward us. 1 John 4 and 10, not that we love God, but He loved us, and First John 3, and the verse 16 as well. So we're reading the love of God, and it's 
clearly spelled out for us in the crimson tide of redemption, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God is, it forever has been, and it will be manifested and revealed to sinners in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ as the sinner substitute. Where do I see God's love, people might ask? Take them to the cross. Let them sit there and take in the scene and absorb the detail, and they will feel the love of God. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, and that's what changes and shows us how amazing the love of God is. Didn't the hymn writer say, amazing love, how can it be that thy, my God, shouldst die for me? So where do I see God's love in action? I see it in election and predestination. I see it in the redemption of my soul by the death of Christ on Calvary, another activity of this love. I see it in the new birth itself. That birth by which we have been born into the family, into the kingdom of God, it's the result of God's love toward us from all eternity. Interesting little text in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16 to verse 6 to 8, and what it does, it tells us, in effect, our regeneration came in the time of love, that effectual call sent out by God's Holy Spirit. Almighty grace, arrest that man, arrest that woman, that call, Jeremiah 31 and 3, it came in the time of God's love to our hearts. It was the fruit of His love. And that adoption that followed into His family, that was the work of our Heavenly Father's eternal love as well. First John 3 and the verse 1. Surely God will save those whom He loves if He is able to do so. And He is able to do so. God's love, you see, is more than a sympathetic passion. It is His determination to see. And so in 1 John 4, verse 9 and verse 10, we read in this, was manifested, shown the activity of love, was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. That's how we are born again, life through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The activity of love, where do we see it? In election, predestination. We see it as well in the redemption of our souls. We see it in regeneration, the new birth. And the final activity of this love that we're mentioning tonight is our preservation in grace. That is a work of God's love as well, our preservation in grace. And again, we mention a text that already we flagged up, John 13 and 1. Another text, Isaiah 43, 1 to 4, and Jeremiah 32, verse 38 through 14. But the one that I'm going to mention in particular is Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and the verse 7, where it says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Now, if that can be true, 
on a human level, and no matter what threatens that love, that love is so strong, it keeps on going, it stays on course, it stays true, and it remains faithful. If that can happen on the human level, how much more where the love of Christ concerning us is concerned? God's love toward His people, it is invincible, and it is unquenchable. There is no possibility that it will ever expire. The black waters of our sin cannot extinguish it. The floods of our unbelief even cannot drown it. God's love for us overcomes every obstacle that could stand in our way to everlasting glory. Every sinner, loved of God from eternity, was redeemed by Christ at Calvary, shall be called by the Holy Spirit in time, shall be preserved the length of the journey, and shall be saved forever. When I fear, my faith will feel. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast, and He does, and He will. And that love will be demonstrated again and again in election and predestination, in redemption at Calvary by regeneration through the Spirit's operation in the new birth, and by our preservation in grace, right through to glory, all the work of God's love. As one hymn writer said, how amazing God's compassion that so vile a worm should prove, this stupendous bliss of heaven this unmeasured wealth of love. But thank God we can say, it reaches me, it reaches me. Wondrous grace, tremendous love, it reaches me.